Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alarm, alarm. Welcome to We Have Ways to Make You Talk for the in- interfestive period, the perineum of the year. We are again in St. Edmund Hall Bar. I'm here, of course, with, with James Holland. Um, how are you, Jim? Yeah, no, not too bad. Just a very nice lunch. Yes, good. <laughs> better and, than yours, by <laughs> And we're joined by uh, Jonathan Fennell. Uh, great friend um, of the show. Great friend of the show. Um, uh, how are you, Jonathan? I'm in fine form, thank you. And writing a new book that you're... Yeah, I'm deep into the first volume of my new three-volume history of the Second World War. Finish it with a ring. Stage (laughs) fix. It is. is. (laughs) (laughs) How will it all end? Yeah, the end of the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, it might end in a in a different way in in your trilogy because you're going beyond 1945. Oh, Jim. Spoilers. It's already, he's already started with the I'm already not outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not yeah. eating a sandwich. No, I mean, yeah. So I'll, I'll take it as far as China and the end of the Civil right. War and, nice. and get some sense of how things end up in Asia after 45. Well, and that, that, that essentially sets us up for the, for the modern world. Well, that's the idea. So I think volume three is going to be called The New World, the war as a, as a moment of profound change in the 20th mm. century. So how yeah. do we set up the world that works post 45 or 49? Well, Everything and, changes. And how long does it take to write a three-volume mega-history? Oh, God help us. Dozen years. Ten years, I'd say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I've been going So which for, Christmas do I want to, like, like so, bags it for? Yeah, yeah. good man. So book Dear one. Santa. Book one. In, 13, <laughs> in 2033, I would like... Yeah. <laughs> Oh. The new order, please. Yeah. So I love, think Jim. 26, 26 Jim for yeah. book one. Okay. And then add three for book two. 29. Right. Then add two or maybe three for book three. Call it 32. Yeah. Okay. So then add 10 years. <laughs> Blimey. Then add 10 years, so yeah. 42. Yeah. Oh, so to read, might not be alive then. Read, yeah, exactly for when I retire. <laughs> 
<laughs> and your right. next book is out in March, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, Alan Sutton's got to be handed in oh, in okay. March at some point. That deadline is sort of ever so slightly uh, disappearing behind Monty Maiella. Uh, well, should we talk about writing? Here we are talking about where where do you even begin? I mean, look, do you find you? I mean, obviously, one doesn't find one's arguments first. One, but the arguments presented by the material as one investigates it, of course, um, uh, uh, one doesn't go uh, looking for proof of what one thinks. <laughs> Where do you begin? Because if it's a, on a global scale... Historians of war, we very rarely talk about these things, yeah. don't we? If, if we were writing fiction, we'd talk endlessly about our method and our approach yeah. and you know how we start, how we keep going, what we do when we hit a block, how we finish. Um, and we don't do it enough, I think. So, yeah, I mean, a global war requires uh, an immense amount of reading. Um, material with which I was previously not very familiar. So I've been reading a lot about China, mm-hmm. increasingly about the war in Africa. Sucking up to Ron Amitta. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> anything he says, I'll do. Um, <laughs> um, and he was helpful in pointing me in certain directions and sources I was looking for. Um, trying to learn about Japan. Japan is modern, complex society. Not as well served. Are you learning languages to be able to do this or are you relying on... Yeah, so, I mean, obviously a fair bit of translation. I mean, I... I studied Latin at school for three years back in the day. Um, I lived in France for years as an Erasmus scholar when I was a student, which was wow. magnificent. So I have decent French. I can kind of navigate European language, such as Italian um, and Spanish. Before I had a run-in with COVID, I was learning German, and I will get cracking at it again and kind of get it to a really workable level. But, Duolingo, yeah, a bit more, a bit more yeah, sophisticated. Yeah, that. I mean, that kind of stuff, really, to be honest. You know, going for a run, listening to stuff. Um, and then, you know, I think I had a chat with Rana, actually. I said, listen, Rana, I... I'd like to learn Chinese so I can so I can do this book and he just, <laughs> he laughed. just laughed at me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Vikram yeah. Set saying that he learned Chinese, he learned Mandarin yeah. so that he could better appreciate the poetry. But he said you could learn modern Chinese and you still wouldn't be able to read the sources from the nineteen forties because the language has, has changed so much. That's it. Right. Yeah. But, wow. Yeah. So new. Um, so I think you really have to be deep into it to to be able to navigate that sort of stuff. Trying to grow as a historian, develop but new tons skills. Tons of tons of reading. For sure. And then, and then I suppose laying out what you want to investigate and then, and then pursuing that. And I mean, because, because I, my, my, the way I, the way I wrote my last book, the way I write my current book is I sort of follow my nose. I sort of think, well, where's this going to go? What, what are the, what are the mechanics up to that afternoon? Because when you look at, so, so, I mean, the regular listener will know this. I'm writing this book about first airborne division and poles in, but only on one day at the Battle of Arnhem. So you just look at the order of battle, and it's this great long menu of. There are infantry battalions, sure, but there's there's a Remy set of people who go in with a mobile workshop and the spanners, and then there's the question of spanners descending. With spanners descending, is the is the the unofficial history, and you, you, you immediately you're in another you're in another world, a whole different set of considerations from the sort of fighty bit. And, and that, that, so I'll follow my nose on that. And that then plugs you into the, what the RESC people are doing and they, uh, what, what, what's happening to them. And, and but how the, do you structure your notes then? So are you, are you putting themes on it or are you looking at it, you know, the first part of the day or the first hour of the day? I'm breaking it down into portions of the day and in places. So I've, I've do, I'm doing it so there's four places and then it's, and four times of the day. So midnight, morning, afternoon, evening, it'll be morning, the town, the mechanic. And I'll do it like that. Or morning the town the doctor, and then and then on to morning the town the battalion. So that's the so I do the doctor in eleven power uh, in in eleven power, and then eleven power, and then the battalion beside eleven power in the place where they're fighting. So I go person unit place as a way of framing how I'm going to tell the story. 
And then, and then the brilliant thing about, or the really interesting thing I'm finding about it is that, you know, there's, there's, even in one day, there are so many meanwhiles at 11 o'clock or at half past three, you know, there's one thing happening one end of the village and another. So terrible. how are these meanwhiles uh, emerging for you then? So, you know, the criticism sometimes we get is that, you know, we, we impose our political beliefs in choosing these meanwhiles, the things yeah. that you think are important. Or yeah. are you able to let the sources speak for themselves? Well, the, 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 I mean, the, the, the fantastic thing about this one day and on is that at three o'clock, literally everything you could possibly imagine going wrong for them happens all at once. There's, there's, there's a sort of hot, hot hour from sort of three o'clock, as far as I can tell, because after all, a lot of people aren't looking at their watches when, when they're witnessing a lot of stuff. So there's, there's, there's several things that don't happen, according to some accounts, when they did, according to the official records. Because presumably they're saying at three o'clock. Oh, you've got and, and, wild, in the side of the wild, wild diary. Wild discrepancies. Yes, so, you know, there will be. Urquhart escapes from his loft at half past seven in the morning-ish. Someone reports seeing him two and a quarter hours later and it, he wasn't there he's not there the guy's looked at his watch wrong or has not reset his watch or, or just made it up just well well or just, he's just roughly. wrong he's just roughly well, don't forget you know you're writing up these you're protecting know, know, exactly. war diaries but, afterwards but thing, and but, but but what's really interesting is is that because it because i'm trying to write a book about the thrust of events i'm i'm at the mercy of the the events for the meanwhiles rather than what I'm looking for necessarily that you know that, that there's a moment where a Focker wolf crashes into the church tower and everyone knows that happens at half past three but <laughs> does, does, does time it. kind of does it does it shorten and elongate like an accordion so like yep. I say there's this 10 minutes for one person who could that could feel like three years yeah exactly that's then, exactly what's yeah. going on and you've, you've endless time dilation and, and con constriction and and that you know a lot of the, a lot of the people in the morning are like hanging around and there's not much going on and then suddenly everything happens all at once you know, the, the supply drop itself is probably only eight minutes, but everyone, apart from one group of people in Arnhem, they see it, they watch it, they stop and watch it. They watch it happen in front of them. And all those accounts all essentially in the descriptions completely overlap. They all, they all match up. They all see the same things. They all see the same stuff happening all at once. But one of the things I'm also trying to do is, so there's Flight Lieutenant David Lord, who's in uh, uh, Dakota KG-334, whichever it is, or 384, goes down in flames with a wing on fire, gets a Victoria Cross. In my account, I'm not going to say he gets the Victoria Cross because he doesn't get the Victoria Cross then. He might go in a, he might go in a like post-credits thing with his VC, but I don't want it to colour the story of what happens because there's two other aircraft that basically do the same thing who carry on flying even it's in the moment, fire. isn't it? It's in the moment. No, one, no, no one's going, oh, there's the lad with the VC. No one's saying that. They all remember him, but someone else, a couple of other planes go... The same thing happens to where they carry on flying even though they're on fire. So. It's probably a month or two months or something yeah. before he gets it. Yeah, 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 it is, yeah. I mean, that is an incredible art, isn't it? To try and recapture the uncertainty of the moment. Mm. We're so but I don't know. It, yeah. it is, and I don't know if I'm succeeding. It's the God's honest truth. I'm really wrestling with this way of trying to, trying to, 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 you know, because what's interesting is for that event, some of the war diaries, particularly the Royal Air Force ones, are like, they are written straight away on the day. It's who's to come back. It's manifest. You know, ev every single person that went on all the flights. Um, and, you know, there's one flight where there's a bloke from the fleet air arm who hitches a lift and then he's shot down and he's in a plane that's shot down. He's killed. He doesn't have a parachute because he's hitched a lift. He's gone to watch. The RAF diaries are all written that afternoon when everyone gets back, whereas a lot of the army ones were written up a lot later. I've got to say, I'm a complete convert to the kind of in the moment thing. 
Uh, it's, it's different if you're doing a sort of really big sweep. Generally, you can't possibly do that. But I think if you're doing a kind of like a uh, like a shorter frame, which which is sort of what I seem to be doing, kind of sort of, I mean, I know January to June, which is beginning of June, it's effectively five months. Basically, doing kind of three to five months periods for, for for the books I'm doing at the moment, and and I think that enables you to write it absolutely in the moment and using primarily contemporary sources, um, original sources. So this is diaries, letters, memos, stuff. I mean, I mean, well, what, in, his, what's di- his, in his last book, you know, there's the, 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 the there are these diaries, and there's an absolute gut punch where one of the you think you think it's a diary that must have been published after the war, or whatever, and it's some one that was found on the dead guy. Oh my god, it's even more than this one. Well, yeah, People are always well, constantly yeah. dying. <laughs> but but and that that then that puts you into the into the reality of it as a, as a you know, the, and it's a German guy in the flat unit, isn't he? Is it, yeah, and, yeah, he yeah. Di- and he dies in the he, he's a reconnaissance unit. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And and if you don't know, then. The world looks really different. I yeah. mean, I was reading the diary of a yeah. profound anti-fascist in in Italy in the early twenties, and he's he's getting to grips with Mussolini's uh, you know assumption to power. Yeah. And in the first month, he says well, Mussolini sounded like a dictator, but in the period after that, he's he start maybe he will stick to the Italian constitution. Maybe maybe actually he'll be able to get a grip on the kind of wilder elements of the fascist movement. Maybe 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 it'll be. It'll be okay, and so he's not sure. But we're all saying that about Trump and things yeah. at the moment. Yeah. That's what, exactly what I thought of. I thought, you know, here we go, thinking, or oh, maybe, maybe we can control. Maybe a second time will be okay. Maybe, maybe. maybe he'll be constrained. Maybe he will. It's the other thing is we because we don't we don't know. There's no way, and there's no way of knowing. One of the one of the difficult, really hard things is to is to put back in. You know, especially around such a well um trod event as the second world war is how to make it feel like we often talk about you know it it's a foregone conclusion if you're an ec- ec- economic historian if you're a marxist historian you approach this foregone conclusion that the germans are going to lose the second world war just on the raw numbers of what they've taken on in terms of three imperiums eventually by by, by late 41 foregone conclusion but no one no one no one's thinking that we should it, never use that term should we as no. historians i mean we have to believe in the agency of Leaders, yep. um, ordinary people, yep. we can things can change at the drop of a hat. Weather, um, yeah, weather. Leave like, people out of it. Yes, and um, I'm thrilled to say that my <laughs> chapter one of my casino book is going to be called the storm. So it's that's how, well, that's how, that's how the 1944 is met. Is this enormous storm, and it's just absolute carnage. Everywhere, you know, all the Fodger airfields are flooded, tents are being ripped up, there's carnage, there's sort of vehicles over, you know, turned over and so on. It's absolute nightmare. So what's your process then? I mean, do you do you start with notes? Do you do it oh, thematically? God, I, I still haven't quite kind of mastered the kind of the perfect. Uh, with me, there's always a kind of like a seed. There's always something that makes me, gets me into, really into the subject. Some event, some thing that I kind of think, oh yeah, that's an entry point. What I do is I, I reckon there's four stages. So I think the first stage is hunter-gatherer. Um, and that's where you go off and do all your kind of archival work. And you, you're trying to get your... What I absolutely don't do is read secondary sources at all at this stage. So, I mean, you know, something like Casino, the telling event, I already know what's going on. So I know the kind of the big fence posts. So I don't need to read book that was written kind of 15 years ago about this because I've sort of, you know, I've already got that. Um, How did and, you acquire that, Jim? Well, just over the years. I mean, you right. know. But I mean, you know, but you have as well. You'd have a pretty yeah, good yeah, sense yeah, of the, the, point, the, the main events and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, point, when the main battle is, you could check up all this stuff on it. Is you know, so so what I do is I um so I go off and I and I I hunt and I go to archives and I gather stuff and and the and I've got to say the first port of call is getting because. I have a different way to a lot of historians and I have a very specific cast list of characters who are my human drama to, to be the conduit 
for that through the narrative and that gives you the scope to then do the analysis and the kind of you know the kind of sort of slightly kind of more weighty stuff but but you have to have the right cast list so you have to you know i always do kind of four or five times the number of people that I need to. So you have to go and get these diaries. You have to go and look at them all and you have to work it out. And then you need to read around it. So today, for example, um, I was looking at this. Everyone at Fifth Army is having an absolute fit because this message has come back from George Marshall over in Washington going, who the, how the hell did this get past census? So it's a war correspondent who's come in and gone, Situation in Italy is an absolute shower. Um, all the guys, you know, the Sherman tanks are rubbish compared to Tigers. The, the men are exhausted. Some of our units have been in the line for 110 days. This is not good enough. It's a pretty gloomy position, uh, picture, this, but I want it to be because this is not good enough. And Marshall has gone back to Fifth Army and gone, how the hell did this get through? So there's this internal investigation within Fifth Army headquarters going, what the heck? This is never have got out. So I've then immediately said, okay, so who wrote this piece? So I found out who the guy who's writing is. He's a journalist. Of course, he's written stuff after the war. Of course, he wrote a memoir. Of course, he's published his diaries. So quickly get onto ABE, buy the diaries. They'll be here in my house in a few days' time. He'll be another character, so I can get him doing it. Then I can have the aftermath of this article, and it'll. It, I'd be absolutely amazed if it's not featured in his in his in his diary. So there's a theoretical underpinning to that approach, right? Which is people matter. That's is that your fundamental? Yes. Yeah. So 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 I get I get my cast list. Then I kind of read around it with with original documents and then i might do some secondary reading because then i kind of think oh i need to know a bit more about you know this is an interesting thread this whole moral m- morale oh well yeah jonathan's book yeah <laughs> flip through that yeah, yeah. you know people's war yeah. you know well thumbed on my my bookshelf and you know and so you you kind of, sort of start building a picture so the hunter so there's hunter gatherer then I come home and I kind of marshal it all and I kind of think okay I've got it all now I now need to read through it all so then that's a process and a half and what I do is I create a chronology so I have a timeline and I have main events in just ordinary font and then I have my then I have big events in bold bombing the monastery for example then I have color coordinated for um, nationality so Germans are purple Americans are maroon Italians and French are green why the Italians you got to explain these colors uh, British are blue British and British and Duke forces (laughs) Not pink or red or... Is anyone red? Yeah, Americans are red. Americans That's sort of maroony okay, red. Okay, right. But it's also what's on my kind of easy font yeah, on, yeah, on, yeah. on kind of... What, and then you can glance along it. So, so what I then do is I say, um, <laughs> you know, um, Laurie Franklin Vale pissed off about such and such at this on this day. Right. You know, this is his letter where he says this. So that tells me that... So suddenly, and you add to this all the time. Mm. So at the end of it, you've got this chronology which tells you the skeleton of the book. And so I then now know that on this day, I've got to, you know, I've got this big event, but I can also fold in Wilhelm Mouse. I can fold in Jörg Zellner. I can do something that Mark Clark's cross about. I can do Laurie Franklin Vale and Hissick. And you kind of sort of fold it all in. Not everything goes in, obviously. So so, so that's your ducks in a row. Then there's just writing the bastard, um, which is just uh, kind of by that point, I'm ready to go. I'm just like up at six every day. I'm at my desk by 6.15. I just pound it all day until I've done it with dog walks and so know, coffee breaks. So will you ride all the way till, till when? To what time? Eight nine, so you can go. That's yeah, a, yeah. That's but, but I mean, yeah. you know, I'm not writing solidly the whole yeah. time. But I'm, I'm powering. And what's a good word count for you on a on a good day? Four. Cripes. All right. I mean, I. Uh, and then, I and then, I wrote four the other and then, day. The, then pop. <laughs> I need to lie down the following day. <laughs> yeah, <but> then, <laughs> then, 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 then the fourth stage yeah. is after you've written it, which is a bit I always forget about, which is when you're trying to organise your 
maps and photos and proofreading and all that. And that's the bit where you're just utterly fed up the whole thing, don't want to ever read it again, look at it, and suddenly lost all interest. You know, so one of your great skills is the ability to tell stories and to make these complex ideas accessible to people, right? By by viewing them through the experience of ordinary people. So do you do you have then kind of subheadings within your process that kind of says, ah, well, this guy is great on, okay, morale or command or, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so what I'm getting for this book is what I don't have is I don't have really good eyewitness accounts of the 34th Red Bulls on Snake's Head Ridge. I don't have really good accounts Punjabs on on Monte Cassino because they all died <laughs> or were wounded or went back to India and didn't keep a record. So they just don't exist. So I'm not going to beat myself up about that. I will obviously explain what happens, but 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 the war in Italy will be seen through the eyes of the characters that I do have. And one of the things that's come across so strongly, um, and more so than ever before, even more so than when I was doing um, the the first bit of the Italy campaign is the landscape and the conditions and the environment and the mood and the kind of falling morale and the and the battle exhaustion because it just makes so much more sense looking at, at, at Anzio and Casino and everything when you realise what these guys have already been through since Sicily. I mean, to be gen- tangential about that, and that's the fridge in the bar in, by yeah. the way, if you're listening. The new gallery, the Blavatnik Gallery, the bit of film they've got about battle exhaustion, combat fatigue, is from Italy. They've got, it's amazing, isn't it? They're absolutely extraordinary. They've got eight, minute, eight minutes of uh, filming some uh, casualty clearing station or psychiatric casualty clearing place, and they've, they've got no sound in it. So, I mean, what they really need is a lip reader to go and because they, it's these blokes being interviewed at the you know at the place where you where you're sedated and then rested up and given a fresh set of battle dress and new underwear or whatever and a couple of square meals and then and they patted patted on the back and sent back and they've got film of it but it's from Italy and and that was the really really interesting thing and immediately when I was watching I immediately made me think of you and talking about morale in Italy so I think I think with 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 this book I'm going to really I'm going to try to put the landscape quite first and foremost on the um, on the Savage Storm but but even more so with this. I'm getting so much mood and I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is really convey what, what people are thinking about this at the time, whether they be an Italian civilian, whether they be a monk in the monastery, whether they be German, whether they be whatever they are. And there's, I've just come across these amazing kind of diaries and letters from a guy called John, John Strick. John Strick actually ended up having a post-war volume of poetry published by Harold Nicholson. He was in correspondence with him. He was an aspiring writer. His father was a gen- major general in the First World War. Anyway, he writes this, this diary and the first London Irish, he is um, he is the intelligence officer, but he also runs a thing called X-Platoon, which is a, like a special patrol aggressive fighting patrol coming he has these hardcore people that go with him and they do aggressive patrol work and anyway he's on this patrol and he and and it all goes horribly wrong and and he gets injured afterwards he's writing up his diary in hospital and he's so reflective and he writes a whole episode of what happens and his regret and he and he keeps saying i you know i just kept bursting into tears and I, i just couldn't couldn't go on and i got picked up and and then afterwards he has a kind of week's convalescence after he's recovered where he's sort of going to pompeii he's meeting up with people and he's going out for dinner and he's just chilling out and he goes on a big walk up to some castle all the children kind of pester him the whole time and he's just constantly kind of talking about life where he's at what he thinks suddenly it's time for him to rejoin the unit again and he starts getting very reflective and anxious about it says i don't really think i'm ready for this but i've got to do it anyway and of course he goes into anzio and is 
you know, spoiler alert, blown to smithereens. Um, but but it is incredible because his character, he he's a bit of a fusspot. He's weirdly sort of delicate of stomach. You know, I ate this food last night, I've had terrible indigestion all night. It's like, oh, come on. You know, you're in Italy, mate. His character just really comes across really quickly. And this is the this is the thing: the best diaries, the best letters, the character, whether it be a grunt on the bottom of a chain or someone a bit higher up, the characters really ooze off the page, and you really get to know them. They're absolutely living, breathing, full color three D people. They're not black and white figures. They're not they're not two dimensional. They're not some old bloke with outsized ears talking about his memories, kind of seventy years on. These people are absolutely the person they are on the day that they're writing about this. And it's incredibly vivid. And it's profoundly upsetting when they then get killed or wounded or injured. And their grief about other people. Also, lots of very weird relationships. So he has a very, very intense relationship with his Batman. It's not sexual, clearly. But there is an intensity to it born out of camaraderie, out of mutual trust. They are completely interdependent on each other. And both of them, he and the, and the guy, his Batman, writes to his mother afterwards and just goes, I'm totally heartbroken. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to survive this war without him. Yeah. And he says in his diary, I don't know how I'm going to survive with, with, with Jock if, if anything happens to him. And it's, this, it, it, it's not sexual. It's a, it's a kind of mutual, total interdependency on it. And the other guy gets killed as well. I mean, off, after my story. But I mean, it's very powerful stuff. And it takes you, I think, much closer to the reality of what it was like than just going, this brigade came up and they got blown to pieces and, you know, the guns opened fire and all the rest of it. It's, it's, too, it's, it's too distancing all that. But all the great theory on war says that this stuff really matters. I mean, go away and read On War by Carl von Clausewitz. Yes. And he says, you know, it's really an awful lot about morale and willingness and dirt and the awfulness. And how do you get people to do things in those contexts? I mean, if you're at the bottom of a hill in Italy and you've got to get to the top of the hill and you've got a gippy tummy, it's a very different prospect, right? Yes, and this is okay. okay. So yeah. there's this guy who's who's after... So the storm on, on the 31st of um, December, the next day they wake up and they're just... Some, they're, they're to the whole place is totally flooded and they can only get out of their tent and to clear because the tent's on a slight rise by going through this lake and he said I was in absolute agony the water was so cold he's, he's like absolute physical pain so it's not pain from being shot in the guts or but it's being outdoors it's just being I mean, outdoors, outdoors and you all just the time which is the thing I remember two war fests ago I said to you it's just striking me how this is you're outdoors all the time you're, we are we are not used to being outdoors all the time these people are literally living female in nurse saying I haven't had a bath in six months and two weeks oh, gold and that is the moment on which we will take a break while you toy with that image in your mind <laughs> Have <laughs> a dirty nurse. Okay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. 
Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're in the uh, Butter It's in Edmund Hall in Oxford talking to Jonathan Fennell. And uh, uh, where, well, where have we got to? Well, I mean, we got to your process. So presumably yeah. your process is, Jonathan, you've, you've got, I mean, for, for such a big sweep like this where you're covering everything, uh, <laughs> sort of 18, 17 mm. years, that's, I mean, you're going to have some primary sources, but that's got to be a lot of secondary sources. Has it been unavoidable? So I have to lean on secondary sources. Um, and so my process is I go through those. I'm trying to pull out what I see as... As key themes, and then yeah, and then I use you know document mapping, not to get too kind of technical on on word, and you kind of highlight those. How, key how do you do that? How, um, what is document mapping? It's just I, I it's feel the like best I'm, thing. Okay, I think I need mentioned. to do yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So um, tell me, well, with a navigation pane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what, what I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. what? Yeah, Jim, yeah. I don't know this. Jim, so what? you can have titles. You can have titles can down the side, and the titles beneath them, and subtitles, yeah. oh. and then drop into them. So I've I've laid out the structure of my book. Boom. And then you. What you, is this? So you can. So <laughs> you can, new language you speak. So basically, you go to the end of the book and write the end of the book, and it's in place within the within the shape of the book, if you want. Ah, but I have to use primary sources as well. I have of course. to. I have to. Yeah. I'm going to bring something but different. You've got to a this. lot, though, haven't you? I have a lot, and so I've had research assistants. I've gone to archives in America myself, sent people to uh, and had help in Italy and Germany and elsewhere and China. And so I think you know at this stage, you know, I can't go and look at everything. But if you're, to, yeah. if you're looking for a Chinese archive, do you go to the Chinese government and say, I'm here to write about China in the Second World War, um, uh, from a, not from a British perspective, or what you understand, or an Irish perspective, but like from a g global post, whatever, whatever your perspective is, you're pitching to them. How do you go to, do you, how do you do that? Because are they, what are they telling, what are they prepared to tell us? And, oh, I mean, research assistants at this stage, you can navigate these systems. I mean, what's really frustrating. So you've got one in China? Um, yeah, I've got um, help and... Um, wow, I just and, need a permanent research assistant. And, That's and what I know, need. But then what can we do about the Soviet Union, the R Russia? I mean, yeah. so the sources I want that are probably in Moscow or whatever, I they will be. How does one get one's hand on them at the moment? Well, and that's Ian a challenge. Ian McGregor, you know, he had that whole thing in Stalingrad, didn't he, where he made friends with the people at the museum in Stalingrad and, and got hold of those exercise books because people were asked to 
in the early 50s were asked to write down their reminiscences. So he got his hands on all that, but that, that's gone. Well, I mean, some of the stories I've heard from colleagues who've managed to pull off research in, in Russia over the last decades, I mean, it's, it's not standard archival work. I mean, it's yeah. not just you rock up. There's all sorts of shenanigans and fun. Um, and they might not want you to come back if you write the wrong, wrong thing, right? Have you still got all those, uh, all those German morale reports? And things? Yeah, I've got some of those. Can you share any of those? Um, um, yeah, of course. Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, there's, oh, there's none for Italy that I've been able to find yet. Um, so I'm trying to find those. Um, loads on the Eastern Front. And, and what if there's a gap in the record? When, there's a, <sighs> when you draw a blank, what, yeah. what, 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 what do you do? What do you do? You go back, you, well, you dig and you dig and you go further into the archives and see what you can find. I, I, and then, I mean, there's all sorts of, I mean, I don't know how you approach it. I mean, there's historical imagination. There's, you've got to try to find ways to make sense of it. Yeah. Um, so one of the, I guess one of the tools I'm trying to use is a little bit like you, Jim. I'm trying to follow kind of families through the war as a sense to make personal these big ideas, these, these kind of concepts mm. that I want to drive the story. Yep. And so where, let's say where I couldn't find censorship reports or morale reports, then I might try and find a family, lean on the secondary sources to say, well, this is the state of collective mood at this point, yep. and then make it real by digging into a family's experience. So yeah, it's... There are, oh, there are, or, you know, all these, these places that you think there aren't. I mean, in, in German, there are loads and loads of German records. You just got to find them. So there's, there's, there's tons of stuff I'm trying to find, for, which I know that the sources exist for, um, for Casino, and I know what their names are, but I just can't find them around. But secondary print. sources can also be really useful in what they leave out. And the, the picture they're trying to they're tr trying to paint post the event after the fact justifications that people in, in, engage in and all that sort of stuff and you need to be able to read between the lines of the secondary source or, as often as not sort of in, treat almost as a piece of literature and, and say what's the author trying to tell me here about the event I'm trying to investigate I mean you, I think especially especially with memoirs you you know I mean I, the thing I love for instance about Montgomery's memoir for instance is it it tells you everything about the man if you want to know what he was like. If you want a, a, as clear a picture of what a man, what a piece of work he was, you read his book about himself. You, there's no need to write, read a book about Montgomery by someone going, oh, he's an awful prig and, and, and he thought he was right about everything and he wouldn't accept responsibility for this, that, and the other, because that's what his memoir is like. If you want to, you know, he's like giving himself the worst character reference imaginable in his memoir. And, and I've, a lot, I've sort of a lot of time for that in a way. The excuses people make tell to speak to character too, you know, and I think that's what's interesting about particularly second memoir, secondary source. Memoirs, after all, occupy a sort of, they're half primary, half secondary, I think, you know, especially the, the further away from the event or the bigger the clangor that the person who wrote the memoir made, you know, they occupy sort of half space. So do you do you employ a rule on that? Will you only use um, memoirs if they're written a particular length of time after the event? Well, what I'm trying to do with this now, I'm trying to make myself an 80% rule so that um, 80% is completely contemporary. I, I think a memoir, if it's very obviously based on the, re the diary they wrote in the war, but not written until 2002, I think it's fine. As long as it's based on contemporary stuff and it's got that kind of... I mean, listen, we've, we've, we've read so many of these things now. You can, you can tell when it's bullshit and when it's kind of made up. And I mean, I've read so many memoirs that are sort of self-published or kind of published by some kind of out-of-the-way place and total bollocks from start to finish. You know, it's just been massively kind of exaggerated and sort of filled in by the kind of the ghostwriter. And it just doesn't, doesn't ring true, you know. And, and so I think you have to use, use personal judgment. But I mean, you know, I'm not writing academic works. So I think it's sort of, well, you know, I mean, I mean, I've just been listening to my brother and Dominic's thing on the Aztecs, where the whole thing is based on no one knows, no one knows, no one knows a thing, no one knows a thing, no about, it. A thing about, well, about it. It's like any Roman history. So, so he like, could have died. This, you know, well, <laughs> you know, he he could have, you know, um, uh, Moctezuma could have could have died this way. 
or this way or another way or another way yeah. and, and, and no, one, no knows. one knows and yeah. and this is all based on kind of hearsay and what people are saying and was that and, even his name and was that even <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't even called aztecs yeah. Yeah. but so you know i think it's okay but i think you know one has to you know when you're writing for the for the for the wider general public you you've you've got to have kind of obviously deep pride in what you're doing and you've got to you've got to impose your own academic rigor onto this and because you're not being judged in your peers in a in an arcane academic journal you know there's an awful lot taken on trust but i think you have to earn that trust and i think you've got to got to be true to yourself without wanting to sound too wanky uh, and you've got a you've got a pretty high standards and you i just don't think you can write anything that you don't know to be true or, yeah. or have a pretty good idea to be true there has to be an honesty doesn't there there has to be honestly yeah. you can't just make stuff yeah. up and there has to be emotional intelligence i think as well i mean to imagine what it must have been like to to look at up the top of the hill in italy from the bottom of the hill in italy with a sick stomach but but um, you can but you can also yeah. you can you can have a photograph which is after all a, a, a moment in time captured mm. and you can see people trudging up a hill and there's nothing to stop you describing what i'm saying so you know the the the, the platoon was heading up the up the mountain the donkeys with head you know the mules with their uh, laden down you know the the peak was three thousand foot further up and a stony path and all the rest of it. you're just describing what you're seeing in that photo you know that, that's perfectly true but you're putting a kind of you know you're trying to to write it in a in a, in a way that is easy to read is compelling takes people kind of as close as you can possibly get to that moment all those sort of things do you get it right first time I my process is I write my chapter, then I stop, read it through, edit it, then and then basically never look at it again until the copy editor comes back. Okay, so you get it pretty right first time. I mean, I'm I'm on the I think the sixth version of my first chapter, whereas because I'm trying to do global history, I was trying. You know, it's tricky. I, I don't. I wasn't able to get. Well, here are the key themes. So I had to write each country independently, which of course read awful. Right. I mean, it's just it's just too much. And then and then I wrote it again, trying to bring it all together and see the patterns across. And so it's just this layering process of one step after another. I'd love to have been able to get it right first time, though. The further in, the further I get into the thing I'm writing, the essentially the easier it comes. And then I have to go back to the beginning and, and re rewrite the first thing I wrote to, to, to make it tally with the way the book's kind of ended up. The style has ended up. So it's sort of, because, you know, I've, I've only written one, one, one history book so far. And well, so, so discovering, nice discovering the prose style, discovering my house style. The thing I found really, really <laughs> difficult about um, about writing Command was I've I've done I've published five comedy books, right? Um, two, three of which I had a couple of other guys writing on it with me, and we I'd say you go write that bit, and then I'd rewrite it all. Um, and, and so it all it had all gone through me, but 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 basically, all right, you've got that right. That'll go. That can go in. And these are the jokes and all this sort of thing. And we, we and but what you don't have is someone going. I need a source for that. Where did that come from? Um, I'm not sure you got. Is that is that right? You know, um, you, uh, don't you mean this? You know, all this sort of stuff. Because because it's sort of. T I tend to write in a sort of uh, uh, it's sort of like it's like a stew. You know, the, the things get thrown in, and then and then on the edit they they, they get tidied up. But for, a, for you write five comedy books, the only arguments you can ever have is they go, I'm not sure this is funny. You go, well, I, I am, right? 
and it's my name on the cover. So this is going in the book, right? So it's like a, an alien process. And, and, and also I've got the, the voice I have for the, for the pub landlord character very well thrashed out, very well worked out. The margins, where the edges are, you know, you, we don't go outside that and this is how we write for it. And this is where the, this is the, t this is the tone, the ed editorial basically. It's been worked out for a long time. So I can, with confidence, hire other people to write to it. And, and then and if they get it wrong, tell them they've got it wrong and fix it. But when I was writing for, for a history book for the first time for myself or for my reader or for who, you know, first of all, you're figuring that I'm writing a book I'm interested in or I think other people might be interested in. My approach to that was with my stand-up. I've always tried to write stand-up shows that I would enjoy watching because that's the only person I can really be certain of in, in, in that regard. And it just so happens other people find that find it funny. So that's good. So, you know... So far, so good in that regard. But for the history, it's like, well, okay, how do I, what even, what even am I going to, how does this work? Do I go rabbit, sort of down the rabbit hole thing? Do I do the diversions in order to make other points? Very quickly adhered to that idea because that that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in where does someone use one thing to tell a story about something else or something else to tell the story about the original thing? You know, like how do we do, which is why my first chapter is about syphilis, venereal disease and <laughs> Montgomery, yeah, yeah, you know, that, yeah. because how on earth do you put yeah. those two things together? Well, you know, he's a product of the 19th century. Syphilis is the, is the specter that's stalking Europe in the, in the 19th century as much as anything else. And so it felt like that, that felt like to me the way to go ahead but I really had to. I really had to sort of figure that out. And then by the end of writing the book, there's the chapter about Percy Hobart in the book, where basically my editor said, "Could you do one more guy?" And I wrote that in a week. I went. I know what I'm looking for. I know where I'm going to get it. I know which bits to pick together. I know what my argument is. And and that that chapter, I was able to basically. I wrote that half of that in a hotel in Swaffham, the other half in a hotel in Leeds, and just like pumped it out because I knew I knew what the book was about by then and, and I found that really that I found that once I reached that point I found that really exciting as a way of a, and I, I almost feel if he'd said if he'd given me the time if he'd said do me two more I'd have been able to do, I'd have been able to pick two more and pack it deliver them like that but you might agree. I mean, I, I think that, that that seemed a pretty grown-up book, didn't you? I liked it, yeah. I thought it was an excellent I, I mean, it, yeah. it really romped along. It was yeah. serious. I mean, there was, it there was no way ideas, that you would yeah. ever doubt that you're not a serious historian from that. Yeah, well, that's... I mean, you, you keep saying this, Jim, and I, I still don't believe it, but um, but, but it, it felt it felt like using people to tell an arc, and there are no battles in it. Well, not really, which I was quite pleased about, because sometimes some battles I'm interested in, others like, oh, God, I can't, I can't, I can't do, can't do this again, that, that you know, up go the, up go the buffs or whatever, and they're late to their start line. I can't do this again, you know. Well, what's going on? What's motivating them? How have they arrived at this way of doing things? That feels to me like the put, you're putting the ghost into the machine again, which again brings us back to the people and, and attitudes and what's motivating people, I think is so interesting because it's the question you'd ask about yourself. You know, what would I do or how would I be motivated? But I was talking to some of the boys in, that we have ways in September yeah. uh, and th some of them were, were interested in, well, they wanted to do some writing. And yes. they wanted to produce uh, podcasts and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And they were saying, like, how do you get into it? What do you do? And I think what you've just said that is really powerful, which is kind of follow your instinct, follow your interest. And if you if you follow your instinct and your interest, you'll do it well. And if you do it well, you're more likely to be successful. Weirdly, this is going to sound. This is going to sound. When I to me, this makes complete sense. In comedy, there's there's this um, rule that the parochialists are universal, right? Um, uh, the, the reason Victoria Wood is very very funny is because she talks about minute details of stuff, and we all have minute details in our life, and that's how we relate to what she's talking about. 
or, or, you know, you look at the Alan Bennett talking heads, famous for the fact that they're about very small lives. We all live our own small life. So there's a way the parochial becomes the universal. The things that concern us universally are the things that concern us uh, directly and intimately. So one of the things I always thought with the, people say to me, oh, your, your act's really, really British. I think, well, why are Australians laughing at it then when I go to Australia? Why do people in New Zealand find it funny? Why can I go to Hong Kong and play there? And, it, and a complete cross-section of people find it. Why, why did it work when I went to Montreal? And it's because, you know, the, the parochialism of the sort of patriotism that the pub landlord expresses and, it, and the parochialism of a man who thinks he has the answer to everything, solution to everything, that's a, that's, that's a universal trait. And, and the, the, that's why, you know, the truth is, is that there are. No, I, I, in my experience, there are no core. Con, or when I go to Ireland, they get they get what they get. What I'm doing, there there are no core ideas of uh, national uh, cultural ideas of what's funny. That they're human ideas. That they're that, that that there are core things that make everyone laugh one way or another. And so the parochial is the universal. And if you if you write if you write history like that. You know, it, it, I think that's really, really interesting because I, think, I, I was sort of thinking, God, there's so much detail in some of this John Strick diary. It's the detail that's making him come alive as a as, as a personality. The fact that he's kind of worrying about his, you know, the spaghetti he's been eating. Again, so, it's kind of it's, so. So by that token, so if if the thing you're really, really, if the thing you're really, really interested in is, you know, um, uh, 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 and 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 it's a point I made at the start the start of my book. You know, well, what is a what is a truck? What is a truck? It's a thing designed by people. So what were their lives like? It's a thing built by people. So what were their lives like? Thing that breaks down. What's it like for the mechanic when it breaks down? Where it breaks down? What, you know, how do you change a tire on it? The, 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 any object has a thousand stories pinging out of it immediately. And, and every story is a person. Yeah, I think as historians, we're fundamentally students of human nature. Yeah. And it sounds like a comedian is a student of human nature. Well, you, well you're, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're playing with it and, and, and talking about it and interacting with it. That the parochial could be the, the parochial is one way in. To, you know, it's why, it's why people who do observational comedy talk about, Jesus Christ, when you, get, when you get to the top of the escalator and there's someone stood there and they don't know where they've stopped at the top, what are they doing? We've all, we've, we can all relate to that. Tiny parochial moment, but it's one that happens to all of us. I mean, it's the really, really interesting thing about the pandemic was, and, and, this, and this really tried with the thing Dennis Norden said. So Dennis Norden got his start in comedy, writing comedy with Frank Muir after the Second World War. And he said, the brilliant thing about three years after the Second World War is if you mentioned rationing, everyone knew what you were talking about. You didn't have to do, you didn't have to set out your stall at all in communicating with an audience because everyone had the same things in common. And so the year before last, doing or and this lasted till just our, just in the autumn of, of, of last year. If you talked about anything pandemic related, everyone knew exactly what you were talking about. They may have had a different view of it all. So we had this weird universal parochial moment where... We were, we were all bound together by this, this thing that intruded right into our lives. And of course, the Second World War is one of those events that intrudes right into anyone, everyone's lives without any choice. One, one of the things I've been really trying to do is, is trying to work out, you know, is there, is there a fourth wall on writing these books? Is, is, is there sort of a way of doing it that hasn't been done yet? And, and I've been thinking quite a lot about form. One of the things I've really tried to do with uh, the book on the show with Rangers and more recently in the Italy book is trying to play with the prose a bit more and not just write it straight with a, a consistency. So what I've been doing is, you know, in, if I am describing any kind of battle scenes or, or combat, then much shorter sentences, slipping into the first person, not first person, into the um, present tense, um, and then slipping out again. 
And then, you know, when you're doing descriptions of landscape and stuff, a bit more languid, a bit more sort of, you know, florid in the writing and trying to sort of think about that because, you you, you know, w- what is it that makes someone kind of re- read on? What, what is it that, that makes writing compelling? Jokes. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's just not that funny in Italy. That's the problem. <laughs> So, you know, I think, it, but I think that's really interesting. And I think also the, the thing about that, if you, if, if one does think in these sort of terms, then I, I think, and it sounds like you're, you, you know, you're having quite a lot of these kind of moments out when you're, you're sort of thinking, okay, how do I do this out? How do I do this where I'm kind of serious, but I, I, I'm also got my own voice and, you know, you, you're writing so that it, again, it's compelling and that people want to read on and stuff. I think it's good to constantly be thinking that and questioning about yourself because I think you know, the terrible thing is to become complacent. You never want to take any of this stuff for granted. You never want to kind of, you know, a, a presume about your audience either. You, you always want to kind of sort of keep it fresh and get better, I think. Find that rhythm. Um, yeah, and I'm trying to make this a beautiful book. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm learning every day about just how to, what, what length should the sentences be? How do we find, to what extent can I, can I use these characters, these families as a, as a, as a tool to tell stories? Mm-hmm. Um, and it is different from a hard academic book that one might write. And it comes back to, I think, presenting it through the eyes of ordinary human beings. Um, being a storyteller, being, being a student of the, of the human experience. And I think if you can, and that is kind of philosophical, I think. I think, you know, we're all sharing here a perspective, and maybe it's politically driven, I do not know, but that it's one thing to understand, say, the policy that Hitler was putting in place. It's another thing to understand why people followed those policies. But I mean, it's really interesting that, I mean, you, human agency in history for a long time was sort of unfashionable, wasn't it? And so, so, so it is interesting that you say, is this a political point of view? Because after all, that's the, you know, that's the Marxist thrust of his history is that human agency is kind of like, why bother talking about it? it it's, it's sort of absent in a, in a strange way from events. Yet you're, do you think this is a political position to hold that, that human agency matters? Or, or, or do you just think it makes sense that that's what the world's really like because because to some people that is a it is a political it is a purely political statement to say that agency matters i don't think it's a political statement although i can see why some would say this is a very marxist perspective yeah um but then a scientist might come in and and do a cohort study that would look at groups of people and how those people experienced a certain reality and we wouldn't blink twice about making generalizations about what certain groups of people think yeah we're not saying that they're their perspectives and, and ideas are determined by their social class or by their region. But we're saying people can have similar experiences yeah. and that can create political views or attitudes. Yeah. So I think there is a way that we can we can do it without falling into that trap. I certainly am not trying to I'm not trying to approach this book as, as as a political tool. I've no interest in that whatsoever. Yeah. I mean there are yeah. there are people who don't like Marxism who might jump on that though and go, you see, Marxist history's done done for because people are writing books that don't you know aren't aren't long because you can't write the thing i mean i I think this is one of the reasons actually why you know war what there's so much contingency in war and and agency and all those sort of things that actually very often why historians on the left avoid it because because it's it's kind of treads on treads on an awful lot you know you think of the battle of midway that they're, they're, they're someone popping through a cloud and spotting the Japanese fleet, even if it's blind luck, that's that's a human's blind luck. That gap in the that gap in the cloud and the weather the weather isn't concerned. The weather's its own long durée of its own own unfathomable nature. In the end, I suppose the human condition is so complex; it's infinitely complex. Yeah, and so to try and put any framework to, to, to explain the whole thing is. I think it is beyond us. The best we can do is just ride the wave, right? Try and work it out in any particular circumstance. We're getting deep. This is 
very deep, Jim. So I'm about that. <laughs> that spinal tap quote where he goes, standing behind Elvis's grave. Yeah, too, much, too much perspective. Too much perspective. Too much fucking perspective. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we hope you've enjoyed this. I oh, mean, that's, a, that's a way to what, end up. Uh, a spinal is, tap quote, isn't the thing it? Is, we're in a bar and there's no drink yet. We're talking like we're, we're talking like we're talking huddled, like round, pints. huddled round pints. <laughs> uh, oh, that's been great. It's been really good fun. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Um, yeah, thanks thank everyone you. for listening. We'll see you all again in 2024. Cheerio.